Well, this morning we're going to do a little who's done it, who did it, who done it. <laughs> we're going to check out and find out who killed Jesus. Now, that's been a question that has been asked for over 2,000 years. Who's responsible for his death? I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, starting with verse 33. It says, and when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if, God's, if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Look at verse 46 one more time. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Who's responsible for the death of Jesus? You know, this simple question has caused centuries of hatred and bigotry between peoples and nations of the world. Holy wars and crusades have been fought over this very question, who killed Jesus? It is interesting to note that for many years the Vatican in Rome had no official diplomatic relationship with the Jewish people or the state of Israel over this very issue. Matter of fact, it wasn't until 1993 that a formal diplomatic relationship was established between the Vatican and the state of Israel. The issue of who killed Jesus has been the source of much anti-Semitism and hatred that we have seen all over the world. After 2,000 years, the question still remains this morning, who killed Jesus? You know, much like the game of Clue, and I think many of us in the room probably have played that game, we have several different suspects. Suspect number one, Caiaphas, which is the high priest. Is he the one that's responsible? Or what about the Sanhedrin, the members of the Jewish Supreme Court? Are they responsible? Or what about Pilate, the Roman-appointed governor over Palestine? Should he be held accountable? 
Or what about Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, appointed to be the ruler over the Galilee region in Israel? Or maybe this one that we've come to disdain in so many ways, Judas, a disciple of Jesus. Is he the one? I want you to consider with me, first of all, the Jewish leaders. You know, in determining our list of suspects this morning, we must consider motive. What possible motive would the Jewish leaders have in wanting Jesus out of the way? Let's examine some possible motives for a moment. From the time of Abraham, approximately 2,247 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, the Jewish people, one might say, had a corner on the blessings of God. The Jews were God's chosen people. The Bible declares that they're the apple of God's eye. They were the recipients of the prophets and the promises of God. They were the ones that received the scriptures first and foremost. It was through their lineage the promised Messiah was to come. And just as the prophets foretold, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, a young Jewish lady. Again, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a Jewish city. Jesus was raised in Nazareth, a Jewish city in the Galilee region. He was faithfully raised in the Jewish traditions of that time, both in synagogue and in temple. Jesus' earthly ministry was almost exclusively to these people called the Jewish people. Jesus declared that he had come. He had come on a purpose and came on a mission, and that was to seeking to save the lost. But he declared he had come to the lost sheep of Israel. He healed their sick. He raised their dead. He preached the good news of the kingdom, and he did so to the Jews first. Jesus, having fulfilled so many of these prophecies of the Old Testament and doing so much good for the Jewish people, what positive or what possible motive could the Jews have in wanting him dead? Jesus should have been Israel's favorite son. They should have looked at Jesus and said, yeah, he's one of us. Jesus is the fulfillment of all these scriptures going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. He is our favorite son. But scripture rather records he came unto his own and his own received him not. His own hometown of Nazareth rejected his deity and even tried to throw him off a cliff and kill him one day. I often have taken groups that we've taken to Israel to that very cliff and showed them where they led Jesus, took him out and wanted to throw him off the cliff and kill him in his own hometown of Nazareth. It was all because he dared claim he was the fulfillment of the prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 61. The Bible tells us that Jesus came to his hometown of Nazareth and as his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And the Bible says he stood up to read and was given to him the book of Isaiah. And he chose to read from Isaiah 61. And he said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He hath anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bring freedom to the prisoners, the recovery of sight to the blind, and to set the oppressed free. 
And then the Bible says Jesus, after having read that, in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth, he sat down and every eye in the place was fixed upon him. And Jesus said, today this scripture has been fulfilled before your very ears. The Jewish leaders, they withstood him. For 2,050 years, approximately 2,250 years, they had been the voice and the representatives of God. And they were not going to yield their authority to anyone, especially some carpenter from Nazareth. The Jewish leaders hated the way Jesus would take them to a task. He had called them blind and leading the blind. He said, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You're whitewashed sepulchers. Jesus embarrassed these religious leaders many times, and he did so publicly. I was thinking yesterday that evidently Jesus had never read Dale Carnegie's book on how to win friends and influence people. These power-hungry religious leaders became furious when they began to see the crowds follow Jesus rather than them. Their power, their prominence, and their positions were now all on the line. You know, friends, what I've discovered, I'm sure you have as well, that threatened religious people can be the meanest of all the mean people on earth. It was the religious leaders that incited the crowds and demanded that Jesus be crucified and that Barabbas be released. You know, friends, nothing has changed this very day. Religious leaders are often the ones that lead the opposition to our missionary endeavors all around the world. In Paraguay, when we were building the church in Sahonia, it was the religious leaders that came out and opposed the building of that church. In Romania, it was a religious leader that led the attack against a group of American pastors as they prayed over a plot of land for a future Bible college. In Greece, again, it is the religious leaders that have demanded laws prohibiting any kind of proselytizing. Did the Jewish leaders have a motive? Yes. Their power, their prestige, and their prominence as religious leaders were all at stake and they did not like it. So I think for the moment, maybe we should keep these Jewish leaders on our suspect list. Maybe they had motive and maybe they're the ones responsible. But what about the Romans? Consider the Romans for a moment. The actual order for Jesus' crucifixion came rather reluctantly from a Roman governor by the name of Pilate. But why? It would appear from Scripture that Pilate had little to no knowledge of this man called Jesus prior to having him brought before him for trial. You see, it was the Jewish Sanhedrin that had hauled Jesus over to Pilate. Pilate became involved because the Jewish leaders did not have the authority to charge Jesus with a capital offense and then carry out the death sentence. It was Pilate that declared, after talking to Jesus and after putting him on the first level of trial, he said, I find no fault in this man worthy of death. Hoping to transfer the case, get it off his docket, Pilate sent Jesus over to Herod. Herod happened to be in town for Passover. Herod was one that wanted to kind of just flirt along with the side of 
the Jewish people to gain their confidence and to gain, you know, the fact that they would follow after his rulership. And so Herod just happened to be in Jerusalem. Though he was not a committed Jew, he was there for Passover to be seen and to be heard. Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great. He was the one that had ordered already the beheading of John the Baptist. Herod was unprincipled, cold-blooded. He was a murderer. So does he have any kind of a motive? You see, Antipas was the ruler of the Galilee region, the area in which Jesus had done most of his ministry and most of his miracles. Antipas was inquisitive. He had heard much about Jesus living in the Galilee region and ruling in that area. He had heard much about his miracle-working power. So in his interrogation, he invited Jesus, why don't you do some little miracle for me, and then I will believe that you are truly the Messiah, the sent one from God. The Bible says Jesus would have no part of that. He wasn't going to put on a show for Herod. And so Jesus neither answered nor spoke a word to this man called Herod in his interrogation. Herod and his soldiers then, they cruelly mocked Jesus. And they sent him off and they sent him back to Pilate. Now in John chapter 19, it records what happens when he comes back to Pilate. John 19, starting with verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. He was beaten beyond recognition at that time. The soldiers, they twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe. It was a robe to mock him. And went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here's the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Now Jesus answers. Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who has handed me over to you is guilty of the greater sin. From then on, Pilate, he tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Now remember that phrase. We're going to come back to it. If you let Jesus go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out, sat down 
on the judgment seat at the place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Remember that title that we found back in verse 12, A Friend of Caesar? The title Friend of Caesar was bestowed upon those who acted in the finest and the highest and the best interest of the emperor. So if you are going to allow Jesus to live, this one that is claimed to be the king of the Jews, then you are no friend of Caesar. And the crowd was threatening Pilate with political ruin at that moment. You're allowing a rival king here in Palestine. And the Jewish leader's threat then to Pilate was to recall him as governor of Palestine at best or at worst to have him charged with treason against Rome. It was an ultimatum that he was being given that day by the Jewish leaders. Pilate, it's either your political head or Jesus. Make up your mind, which will it be? The Bible says he then took a bowl of water, washed his hands of the matter, and pronounced a death sentence upon Jesus to the delight of the religious leaders. It is interesting that phrase, I wash my hands of this comes directly from that particular time when he washed his hands and said, I'm not responsible. You go off and you kill him if you want to do that, but don't count me in on it. Historians give us some rather, rather important insight there about the rest of the life of Pilate. They say that Pilate compulsively over and over and over was washing his hands as though he felt the guilt, and water alone could not wash it away. And so historians tell us that after, you know, having had a part, small part, albeit, in the crucifixion, he continued to wash his hands. So who killed Jesus? For a moment, I think we should add Pilate and Herod to our suspect list. However, friends, before we look any further for suspects this morning, let's investigate God's plan for the redemption of mankind. You know, Satan is a master of deceit. His specialty is clouding and confusing the issues of life, even the very simple issues of life, of our genetics and who we are biologically. He confuses, 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 and especially is clouding and confusing what ought to be the simple issues of life. Now by shifting the focus from God's eternal plan of salvation to a whodunit mystery, Satan has successfully caused years of bigotry, hatred, and wars. Now here's what the Bible says. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, and the word Genesis in and of itself means the beginning. 
So the book of Genesis, chapter 3 and verse 15, this verse follows immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve. And now Jesus, or God, is speaking here, and he's speaking to Satan or the serpent. He says, and I will put enmity, open hostility between you and the woman, and between your seed, offspring, and her seed. He shall fatally, that is the Messiah, he shall fatally bruise your head, and you shall only bruise his heel. Look at Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. It says, when the fullness of time was come, God sent his son, made of a woman, made under the law. Now some translations read this way. In the perfect moment in world history, at the precise moment, not a day early, not a day late, God sent his son, when the fullness of time was come, God sent his son, made of a woman, made under the law, Here's the reason, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Aren't you glad this morning that you could be a son or daughter of God? Aren't you glad that you can know that this is true because of the price that Jesus paid for us? John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Two portions of Scripture that we've memorized, and sometimes things that we've memorized as children or at some other time or season of our life, and it's been some years that have gone by, sometimes the meaning and the depth of the meaning of it gets lost. I want you to think about what it is saying, though, in light of all of this. For God so loved the world. Now remember, God loves this world. And I want you to know there's no place like planet Earth. And the eyes of God are fixed upon this little blue planet that is spinning in space. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Notice, because of God's love for lost mankind, he sent none other than his own son. And the Bible says, if we will accept him, that we won't perish but have everlasting life. Look at verse 17, which is often overlooked. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. It says, therefore, my father loves me. This is following right after the account of the good shepherd that you read about in John chapter 10. And right after Jesus had said, that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It says now in verse 17, Therefore my father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me. Friends, I want you to know this morning, there's not enough devils in all of hell to kill Jesus had it not been for his plan and the will of Almighty God to bring about the salvation of lost mankind. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This command I received from my Father. Now, in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, it's rather insightful. For it says here, referring to Jesus as the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Think about it for a moment. It was not a knee-jerk reaction that God sent His Son. 
It was not just a crowd that gathered round about that Jesus was in the wrong place at the wrong time and a mob had him crucified. Nor was it the plan of the Jews. Though Pilate and Herod, they played a minor role in Jesus' death, ultimately they are not to blame. The death of Jesus was God's plan to redeem lost mankind. I want you to think about that for a moment. You know, I like to think about it like this, that somewhere in the eons of time before the creation of man, a meeting must have taken place in the portals of glory. In this meeting, a discussion of the creation of man must have taken place. And being all-knowing, God knew that mankind would sin and would be separated from him and suffer eternal loss. And the discussion must have centered on the fact, should we go ahead with this plan? And I'm sure the angels must have come in and they too must have probably even had a, a little something they wanted to say about it. God, don't do this. There's too much at risk here. Why would you create man? Why would you create the earth if you knew that man that you placed on the earth would turn against you, would sin against you, and then would be separated from you? God, it's too big a risk. Why would you do this? I believe Jesus in that moment volunteered. He volunteered his life before mankind was even a twinkle in God's eye. For the Bible tells us before the foundations of the earth, before any of this existed, the Lamb of God was slain. He gave his life. He gave his life to save ours from destruction and from sin. You know, friends, the story of the cross is the most incredible love story the world has ever known. This week, a lot of people are going to celebrate what is called Valentine's Day. A lot of flowers are going to be bought, a lot of candy, a lot of going out to eat, a lot of, a lot of that. But I want you to see the cross as the greatest symbol of love the world has ever known. God loves you this morning. He loves you so much that he sent his son on a mission seeking to save the lost. Now back to the question. So if God knew that man was going to sin, why did he just not call it off? Why didn't he say, this is just a bad idea? Here's why. The Bible says when Jesus was heading to the cross, he looked beyond the cross. He looked beyond the shame. He looked beyond the pain. He looked beyond his death. And here's what he saw. He saw you. He saw you. He saw the redeemed of all time. Some of the churches that we visited and ministered in in Argentina, amazing. I preached to one crowd at the amazing an amazing time, what they call their anointing service, and thousands and thousands and thousands of people were there. Jesus saw every one of them. He saw you. And he loved you so much that he wanted to give you an opportunity to have a relationship with him and a relationship with the Father. And he must have said, Father, I'll go. 
I'll pay the price because there's too much to gain. There's a whole eternity to gain with these that you will create. I'm so amazed at God's love. I'm so amazed that while we're yet sinners, God sent his son. And the Bible says that where sin abounds, the grace of God doth much more abound. Think of what he has created. He's created not only the earth, not only created those that have gone before us, he's created you. You're a creation of God. And through redemption, you can have a relationship with him that goes on forever and forever and forever. You see, when a Christian comes to Christ, our eternal life starts at that very moment. And we just pass from life to greater life. It's all because of Christ. Will you bow your heads with me, please? Father, this morning, Lord, we're amazed at your incredible love. We're amazed that you would send your son on such a mission. Jesus, we are deeply, deeply touched by the fact that you would love sinners. Scriptures tell us for a good person would one dare to die, but you died for us while we're yet messed up sinners. Thank you, Lord, for the transformation you make in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for shedding your life's blood for us. You laid down your life. No man took your life. No one would ever be with enough authority, power, strength to be able to crucify you without you laying your life down. You laid your life down. You said, no man takes my life. So, Lord, this morning, we're not looking to point a finger somewhere. Who did it? We have found the answer. It's found in the fact that you loved us so much that you came on this mission for us. Thank you, Lord, for the transformation you make in our lives. Thank you, Lord, where sin abounds, that grace of God is always greater. Thank you, Lord, for whomsoever the sun sets free is free indeed bondages we're unable to break on our own and the captivities that we all face in some area whether it's in thought or in actions or habits in life Lord in all of that you came so that we might be free Father I thank you for the gift of your son with heads bowed and eyes closed this morning before we go to the Lord's Supper